Father, it's been a rich experience so far, just peeping into the life of your dear son. And, and we've seen some, some amazing things, uh, some things that we want in our own life. We want to have that experience. And so, Father, as we continue to watch this, this whole story play out in the next scene of the trials of Christ, Lord, speak to our hearts again. I pray that we will fall at the foot of the cross and be broken and remolded and shaped into the men and women that you want us to be. Thank you, Father. Amen. You probably already know this now. So um, our theme text, as we sing in our theme song, what's our theme text? Anybody remember where it's found? Revelation 14 and verse... Four, all right. Revelation 14, four. We're looking at the 144,000 here in this particular passage of Scripture. Revelation 14, four. Some of the characteristics of these uh, precious people that will be alive on earth when Jesus comes. The Bible says, And these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins, they are spiritually pure. These are they which do what? Say it, everybody. Follow the Lamb where? Wheresoever he goes, wherever the Lamb leads, they will follow. And as we looked in the spirit of prophecy, the servant of the Lord tells us that we will only be able to follow the Lamb in the courts of heaven above if we first follow him here below. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking at the crisis at the close, and we're comparing between the crisis at the close of the life of Christ, the last 48 hours of his life, and the crisis at the close of this earth's history. And as we're making these parallels, we're looking for tools that Jesus used to make it through his crisis so we can use those same exact tools to make it through the hour of crisis that comes our way. Now I want to share with you a passage of scripture that has become very precious to me in my personal walk with the Lord, one that I've spent a lot of time meditating on just recently, and that's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. The Bible says this, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his, what? In his steps. Now it goes on and it says this Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. That's who we are trying to follow here. Now, as we look at this passage here in 1 Peter chapter 2, again, usually it's looked at in a general sense that Christ is our example in all things. And as, as true as that may be, there is a specific application to the passage here because Peter says uh, he's, he's looking at the, the suffering of Jesus and how as he suffered in his suffering, that is an example to us in how we should live our lives when a time of suffering comes our way. Now, the word that's translated here in the Greek for example, it is the only time that it appears in the New Testament. I like it when I stumble across the word that's only used once in the New Testament because there must be some significance to it. It's the only time that it's used. And the Greek word that's used, for example, in, in the Greek language, it is a word that is used 
for students when they were learning how to write the Greek alphabet. And what they would do is they would be given a copy of the Greek alphabet, and from that copy, they would copy down their own copies, and that's how they would learn the Greek alphabet. It was their example or their copy. And so here Peter is telling us that as Jesus suffered, that he is our example. What Peter is saying is that Jesus is who we are to copy when our time of suffering comes upon us. Isn't that beautiful? And he tells us exactly, he doesn't just stop there, but he tells us exactly how Jesus responded in his time of suffering. What's the first thing that the Bible says there? Who did know what? He did no sin. That's amazing when you think about it. Here he is in the most trying time of his life. The mob is in front of him. The disciples are in chaos around him. Judas is there right in his intimate space. And the Bible says, who did no sin? (laughs) I want to be like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He didn't say things back to try to hurt other people. Uh, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to him that what? Judgeth righteously. Now, this is something that we have a hard time doing as human beings because we want to control things ourselves. And so we get put in difficult situations, and the natural tendency of a human is to take control of the situation ourselves. Am I speaking the truth? The the natural tendency is not to say, Father, what do you want me to do? That's not the natural tendency. The natural tendency is, I know how to deal with this. And boom, we try to take care of it. But the Bible tells us that when Jesus was in this situation, he didn't threaten them, but he relied upon him that judges righteously. He depended upon his father and let his father be the one who judged his accusers. Lord, help me to be like Jesus. Beautiful, beautiful description here of Jesus. The example that is given to us as we come into the time of his trial. Now, so far what we have seen in our last few studies together, is that in the last days, we, have a, we will have a similar experience to Jesus in the sense that we will have a Judas experience. There will be those that will betray us. Those of our own household, we're told, will be our worst enemies. We also will have a similar experience in the sense that we will be persecuted by, uh, by those that are nearest to us and maybe even those that are within the religious community. We're also told in Bible prophecy that the church and state will unite together just like it did with Jesus in the time of Christ. Church and state came together and the result was the persecution of God's son the result will be the persecution of us we have these things that are going to happen in our lives but we have an example that Jesus didn't have somebody should be thanking the Lord for that You see, Jesus had to depend upon his father and just figure it out between him and his father. But I thank the Lord that I don't have to figure it out, that I can look to Jesus and say, he is my example, and I'm going to follow him. I will follow thee, my Savior. But the burning question is this tonight. The burning question is this. Why does God allow human beings... To persecute his children. Why does God allow this to happen? Now, it is perfectly obvious that the father could have prohibited what happened to his son if he chose to. 
but he didn't. Why does he allow these things to happen? Now, there probably could be a variety of answers to that question, and I'm sure a lot of those uh, answers will be uh, spoken about at GYC, perhaps directly or indirectly. But what I would like to pose to you this evening is that God allows these things to happen as it happened to his son and will happen to us as a demonstration. As a what? The word demonstration is defined as the action or process of showing the existence or truth of something by giving proof or evidence. God allows these things to happen as a demonstration. He is using his son to demonstrate to us the love of God in humanity. He is using his son to demonstrate to us how we should live in our hour of crisis. And he is going to use you and he's going to use me as a demonstration in the last days that the devil's accusations that God is an austere and stern God who is requiring things that are impossible as human beings, the whole basis of the great controversy, he's going to use you and he's going to use me as a living demonstration that the devil's accusations are wrong. And what a royal responsibility God has given to us. What a beautiful opportunity he's given to us to be a living demonstration to others of what God can do through a heart that is surrendered to him. 1 Corinthians, jot it down, chapter 4, verse 9. The Bible says this, For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are made a what? To who? Angels and? What's a spectacle? You know, I googled the word spectacle, and I came up with eyeglasses. <laughs> That's not the spectacle that I was talking about here. It's spectacle, something that is being observed or watched with, with some type of interest. It's drawing the attention of the person. It's a spectacle. The Bible says we are a spectacle. Praise God that I can be a spectacle for Jesus in the arena of wickedness in this world today. Amen? What a great gift God has given to us. What a wonderful responsibility he's placed on his shoulders. It is a privilege to be a living demonstration and a spectacle for our Savior in the world today. Although some of us might think of it more as a burden than a gift. So this is an important concept that I want you to get clear in your mind tonight before we push on to the trials of Christ. And that was the question that I posed. Why does God allow this to happen? Why did he allow it to happen to his son? Why is he going to allow it to happen to me? This question, listen to me carefully, this question must be clear in our minds. If this question is not clear in our minds, we will question God, when the crisis comes, like the disciples questioned Jesus as he stood there before the mob, willingly giving himself up. It has to be clear in our minds 
that we are a living demonstration and that God is willing it for his best for these things to happen in our lives. This question has to be clear in our minds. Otherwise, when the crisis comes, we're going to be fair weather Christians and we're going to join Peter and his group and we're going to listen to Peter's suggestions. We're going to pull out our sword and fight for a little bit. But when it gets a little too hard, we're going to scurry off with our tail between our legs and we're going to betray our master as he did. It has to be clear in our mind as it was in the mind of Jesus that this was the will of the Father for him to be spat on, for him to be beaten, for him to be dragged around in an inhumane manner, for him to ultimately be crucified to a cross. Jesus knew in his mind that this was the will of the Father. There was no doubt for that in his mind. And we have to have that clear in our minds as we enter into the final crisis. Otherwise, our Christianity is built on shifting sand. So we turn our attention to the, to the trials. Trials, for there are six of them. Jesus first stood before Annas, the ex-high priest. We're going to look at that here in a minute. After that, he was hurried off to the court of Caiaphas, the ruling high priest at the time. Then from there, he stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin to get the stamp of approval on his execution from the 71 Jewish lawyers that were there listening to the case. From there, he was pushed off to Pilate. Pilate did not want to take the responsibility, so he pushed him off to Herod. Herod just made fun of him and asked him to perform miracles, which Jesus obviously would not do for his own sake. And so Herod pushed him back to Pilate, and Pilate finally crumbled and made the decree for him to be persecuted. Six trials Jesus went through before he met his ultimate crucifixion. Why did God let it play out for so long? He could have easily just allowed Jesus to die right there at the hands of the mob. He could have easily let, let them just lead him off to the place of execution right there. Boom, he was dead. He could have easily just let it happen quickly, but he didn't. He let it be a demonstration. And brothers and sisters, I thank God that he let it play out the way he did because there I find an example of how I should live my life. What if God had just let it happen very quickly and it was all over? We wouldn't have all of that rich, that rich spiritual advice that we find in the example of Jesus. I praise God for that demonstration that he has given to us. So go with me in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 18. John, the 18th chapter. We're looking at the first of the trials here in the court of Annas. Annas was, as I mentioned, he was the ex-high priest. He was a very old man at this time. In fact, Annas was uh, Caiaphas's father-in-law, so they had a relation there. Annas was a very well-respected man within the Jewish economy. In fact, he was so well-respected as a dignitary among the Jews that the voice of of Annas was to the Jews as the voice of God. That's how much respect they put in him. Now, Jesus was led to Annas first because Annas was supposed to be a very intelligent and cunning human being. They did not want to risk taking Jesus to Caiaphas first, lest Caiaphas in his 
as a novice, as a high priest, may not be able to secure the information necessary to be able to pronounce the execution upon Jesus. So they took him to to Annas because he was such a well-respected and intelligent human being. There were two things that needed to be established in order for Jesus to get the death sentence. First, he had to break uh, a law that would be worthy of death within the Jewish system. Secondly, he had to break a law that would require death within the Roman system. These two things had to be established first before the death sentence could be given to Jesus. And so now he enters into the court of Annas. It is just past the hours of midnight. It is early, early, early in the morning on Friday. Jesus has gone through a lot at this point. His disciples have scattered like sheep without a shepherd. The betraying kiss has been placed upon his cheek. The teardrops, or the sweat, rather, of blood has poured from his face. His royal robe has been stained with that blood. The mark is still on his his face, but he has a peace and a dignity as he stands before what the Jews think of as the most intelligent man in the world at the time. And here he stands before Annas, and we go to verse 19, and we pick up the story here, and it says this, the high priest asked Jesus of his disciples and of his what? Doctrine, And Jesus answered him and spake openly to, sorry, he said, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why ask thou me? Ask them which hear me, which I have said unto them. What I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I have said. As we look at Annas' question, he asks him about his disciples and his doctrine. What Annas is trying to do, and this is, this is all played out in the book Desire of Ages, so you can read it there if you want to. But what Annas is trying to do is he's trying to establish first a law that Jesus has broke within the Roman system. The Jewish system is an incidental. Of course, all of them are together. They want to see Jesus put to death. But they have to have some evidence to secure the death sentence within the Roman system of law. And so he goes first at that because, of course, the popular opinion was that Jesus would set up an earthly kingdom here on this earth. And so Annas was trying to get Jesus to tell him something that would secure his death sentence within the Roman system of law. Jesus does not go there. Ellen White says that Jesus saw right through Annas. He could look right into his heart, and he knew exactly what he was trying to do. And so Jesus tells him, listen... All the people that you have sent to, quote-unquote, spy on me, they've heard what I have to say. They've been there. In the synagogue I have taught, I have not said anything in secret. Ask them. They'll be able to tell you my doctrine. Ellen White says this in the book Desire Age, page three oh, uh, sorry, 703. She says, Christ said nothing that could give his accusers a what? How many of you think that's a good piece of advice? That was only about five of you. <laughs> I trust that the other part thought it was good advice as well. 
Jesus said nothing that gave his accusers, accusers an advantage. Now, this is a good piece of advice for us because oftentimes when we're in these types of situations, we are quick to come to our own self-defense. Am I speaking the truth, yes or no? We are quick to try to vindicate our own name and our own reputation. But Jesus was not into that. He was simply there to perform the will of the Father. And so he said, ask them. I'm not going to give you any advantage than what you already have. So Jesus kept his mouth shut. He didn't tell him anything. He said, ask, the, ask those other people. They'll be able to tell you. Now notice what it says in verse 22. It goes on. It says this. And when he had thus spoken... Uh, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Now remember, Annas was the most respected man in the Jewish system. His voice was as the voice of God. And this man was filled with rage that the Son of God would speak to the priest in that manner. And he smacks him in the face. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Here's the back end of the story. Annas was completely silenced by Jesus' response. Now remember, he's supposed to be the most intelligent man in the Jewish system. Very, very gifted mind. And Jesus' quick response and quick answer totally silenced Annas. He had nothing to say. And it was that silence that filled this officer's heart with rage. And that's why he smacked Jesus in the face, because Jesus effectively shut Annas down. He couldn't stand it. They were supposed to get everything they needed from Annas, and now it was done in just a matter of moments. And here we find the first physical mistreating of Jesus being smacked in the face. Now remember, yesterday we looked at this, this, this condition that Jesus had when, when you sweat blood. And medically what they say is when people have this condition, their skin becomes very sensitive. It's one thing to be smacked in the face. It's another thing to be smacked in the face after you've had this condition happen to you. This is a very painful thing. But in tenderness and love, Jesus turns to the man and he respectfully responds to him and asks him for a reason why he has done what he has done. That's all that happened in Annas' court. But there's two things that we learn or two examples that Jesus gives to us. And these are the two examples that we find in the judgment scene of Annas. Number one, Jesus spoke nothing that would give his accusers a what? Advantage. He did not speak anything in self-defense. Number two, he was self-controlled when harshly dealt with. It's one thing to control yourself to not defend yourself, you know, or to defend your reputation. It's another thing to stand there and have somebody haul off and smack you in the face and not retaliate. Jesus was self-composed. 
He controlled himself when this man came and smacked him in the face. And these are two examples that we find in the court of Annas that we as God's children should take note of and follow in our own lives. How many of you want to be like that? Oh, Lord, God, help me. Listen, again, this is not human. This is divine. This cannot happen, humanly speaking. But when divinity possesses humanity, all things are possible. But we turn our attention to Caiaphas' trial. And uh, go with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. This is where, it's, uh, where we're going to take it up. Matthew 26. As I mentioned, Annas's trial was very short, didn't last too long, and Annas was unsuccessful in obtaining the information that he needed. Remember, he needed two things. He needed a reason for him to be killed in the Jewish system of law and a reason for him to be killed in the Roman system of law, and he failed to achieve or to find out either one of those things. So they rush him off to the court of Caiaphas. It's early in the morning. It's just before the time of dawn. And as they assemble themselves together, there in the court, in the royal court of the high priest, Caiaphas sits down on his throne, the judgment seat. And he looks down at the prisoner who is before him. Now, he's seen Jesus before. But now he is looking at Jesus with different eyes. Jesus is a prisoner. He's bound. There are guards around him. And now Caiaphas appears to have the upper hand. And I have to turn to the divine commentary because this is beautiful. As Caiaphas looks at Jesus. Now remember, his, his garments are stained. His face is stained. His skin is probably red from having been smacked just moments before. He is weary from a night of praying. It's been a long few hours uh, for him. And here he stands before Caiaphas with his royal robes on, the high priest. And this is what it says. As Caiaphas now looked upon the prisoner, he was struck with admiration for his noble and dignified bearing. A conviction came over him that this man was akin to God. The next instant, he scornfully banished the thought. Now, remember, at the beginning, I established this point. Why does God allow us to allow these things to happen to us? Why did he allow it to happen to his son? And we, we came to the conclusion, or I suggested to you, that the reason is because God is allowing this to be a demonstration. And what he was doing as he was doing this demonstration in the life of his son is he was giving people like Caiaphas an opportunity to acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of God. Even at this late point in Caiaphas' life, there was still some conviction in there that perhaps this man would be akin to God. But I would submit to you this evening that at that point right here where she says, the next instant he scornfully banished the thought right there, Caiaphas committed the unpardonable sin. 
severed himself off from God and that conviction left him. The Holy Spirit that was convicting him that Jesus was the Son of God left him at that moment and the next time that Caiaphas sees Jesus, he will see him sitting at the right hand of the power of God. He's looking at him. You know, this strikes me because being dignified and noble doesn't have everything to do with what's on the outside. We think it does. If I dress a certain way, if I, you know, do things a certain way on the outside, I will have a noble bearing. No. Jesus was noble even though he was a prisoner. He looked at him and he thought, this man is akin to God. But not only was Caiaphas struck with this, but it goes on and it says, the people compared the excited and malignant deportment of Annas and Caiaphas with the calm and majestic bearing of Jesus. Even in the midst of the, of the hardened multitude arose the question, is this man of God-like presence to be condemned as a criminal? Were they being convicted? The demonstration is playing out. God is working with the hearts of these people, these Jewish people who are so entrenched in their way of thinking, so entrenched in their traditions, so blinded with their stupidity that they are about to crucify the Messiah. God is working with them through the demonstration of his son. And brothers and sisters, we're told that we will be brought before the great men and the judges of this earth. And they will look at us, and inside of their hearts, they will see there is something different about that Seventh-day Adventist. But they will only see something different if something different is inside of that Seventh-day Adventist. And it gets inside of us through that prayer time in the garden with Jesus every day. It comes back to that. It comes back to that all the time. They will look at us, and this conviction will begin to come in their lives. And I praise God that we're told that actually there will be some who will follow that conviction and will embrace the truths of God's word and will be saved into the kingdom because of the demonstration that God allows to play out in our lives through the trials that we were brought through, through the difficulties that we have to face. Even the death sentence will be used as a demonstration to win people into the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, we got to look at this from a divine perspective. If I've cut off a couple of years of my life here on this earth so that I can be a living demonstration for God, who cares if I'm in the kingdom of heaven and other people are able to come because of my demonstration? But friends, that doesn't come from a human heart. That comes from a human heart that's, that's possessed with divinity. So here they are. They're in the court. Caiaphas is looking at Jesus. He has this conviction uh, that this man is God-like. The people look at Jesus. They are convicted. And Caiaphas, as he, as he banishes this thought scornfully, no, he cannot be the Son of God, committing, in a sense, the unpardonable sin, repressing the promptings of the Holy Spirit in his life. He sees that Jesus just standing there. He hasn't said a word. He hasn't made a move. Just his presence is beginning to sway the people that are there. That's power. That's the power that we can possess inside of our hearts if we follow the example of Jesus. 
that we won't even have to say a word and folks will be persuaded that there's something here that I want. And Caiaphas sees the crowd being swayed. He sees them, the, the look of tender compassion that's beginning to come into their eyes and he's, he's, he's filled with rage at the thought that Jesus is beginning to sway the audience and so he comes to the conclusion that he needs to do something to recapture their attention and so he calls in these false witnesses to come in and falsely accuse Jesus and they come in one after the other and they begin to rail these false accusations but they're all conflicting with one another and finally there are two men who are nameless in the Bible who have been bribed by the high priests say this so that Jesus can be condemned what a pitiful soul willing to be bribed by some earthly worm to betray the son of God momentary praise and accolation from the high priest passing for a moment they were just a pawn in the hand of Caiaphas they didn't mean anything all they wanted was Jesus dead. And so these two men who've been bribed by the high priest, they come in. In fact, they come in independently of one another because that's the way it worked in that time. They did not stand there together, but one would come in, he would give his, 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 his eyewitness account, and then the next one would come in and give his witnessing account. And so as these two men come in, they begin to tell this story. And what they say is that Jesus made this statement, and this comes from the mouth of one of the false witnesses. He says, Jesus said this, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in what? Sounds like a pretty ludicrous thing to say. But here's the interesting thing. Ellen White says that this accusation, even if it was true, which it isn't, but even if it was true, would not have been enough to secure the death decree in the Jewish system or in the Roman system. But this is what the high priests were bribing them to say. This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. When in reality, this is what Jesus said in John chapter 2. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. He said nothing about him being the one that did the destruction. Can you see the difference there? So it was twisting. If they could really have heard exactly what Jesus said, it would have fallen flat. So the accusations begin to fly they don't agree with one another. In fact, that's what Mark says. Mark says, neither, did, uh, neither so did their witnesses agree together. Even these two witnesses that had been bribed, you would think they could have got it together and said, okay, you say this, I'll say this. You say this, I'll say this. And just kind of, you know, repeat. You, you think they could get But even then, there were still conflict, conflicting witnesses' accounts. And, and apparently within the, the, the Jewish system of justice, if, 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 if there was a conflicting eyewitness account or a witness that came up and the witnesses uh, disagreed with one another, it was the responsibility of the high priest to release the prisoner immediately at that time. Caiaphas. Did he do that? Mm-mm. He had one goal in mind, and that was to see Jesus put to death. 
So, so these, these eyewitnesses account, even though they've been bribed, even though they've been bought off, even though they, they had rehearsed what they were going to say, it was just pandemonium. Things were not agreeing. There was discrepancy in the witnesses. And so Caiaphas recognized this is not going to work. So he throws out all the eyewitnesses and he has to get something from the voice of Jesus himself. And so he turns to him and he says, do you have anything to say for yourself? What does Jesus say? Nothing. Because he wasn't there to defend himself. He was there to vindicate his father. He doesn't say anything. He just stands there very humbly. In fact, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb. So he what? You know, it's interesting that, that, that in the Old Testament, you, you kind of get a, almost, in a sense, a clearer picture of what happened in the closing scenes of the life of Christ than you might get in the New Testament. It's beautiful. The Bible says he would not open his mouth. He wasn't there to defend himself. He was there to vindicate his father. So he kept his mouth shut at that time. Then Caiaphas comes, and he makes this statement in verse 63. Matthew 26 and verse 63. Caiaphas raises his hand, his right hand, and he makes a solemn oath, and he says, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be Christ, the Son of God. And at this, Jesus could not keep his mouth shut any longer because his father's reputation was at stake. And at this adjuring, this solemn oath from Caiaphas. In fact, Ellen White, it's, it's an amazing description that she gives of Caiaphas sitting there on his throne as he's standing, or sitting before, before Jesus. She says that there's this look, this demonic look in his eye that if it were possible, he would strike down the prisoner before him if he could do it himself. He was possessed when he repressed the Holy Spirit, that conviction that was in his heart. Instantly, the demons of the devil came into him and possessed his mind and his being. They possessed his mouth. They possessed his eyes. They possessed his hands. They possessed him to the, sense, uh, to the, to the extent of insanity. I adjure thee by the living God. Are you the Son of God? And at this, Jesus responds, and he says this in verse 64. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, in Mark 4 and verse 64, he says, I am. He responds to the question, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. This is the first time in the trial of Christ that he acknowledges that he is the Son of God. And the words of Jesus startle Caiaphas. You've got to read this chapter in the court of Annas and Caiaphas. It's just an amazing chapter. But I won't go into too, too much detail. But it wasn't the fact that Jesus said he was the son of God that made Caiaphas mad. But it was the fact that Jesus brought up the resurrection that made Caiaphas mad. Because he didn't believe in the resurrection. And here Jesus is telling him that you, you will see me sitting on the th- right hand of power and glory. And this is what filled Caiaphas with rage. This is what pushed him to the extent where he ripped his royal robes. The Bible tells us in verse 65. 
He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? Caiaphas is filled with rage. Not that he is performed blasphemy that he's a son of God, but that he would challenge this theologian in the Jewish system of his understanding of the resurrection. He didn't believe in the resurrection, and Jesus is telling him that he would see him when he rose from the dead. That's why he's mad. So he tears his royal robes. And this is what Ellen White says as we look at Caiaphas tearing his robes. Desire of Ages, page 708. Little did Caiaphas realize its meaning. In this act, done to what? Influence the judges and secure Christ's condemnation, the high priest had what? Did he rip his robes because he was horrified at the blasphemy? Yes or no? It was a pretending, it was a, it was a, a theatrical performance that he was performing here. He did it to try to sway the judges and influence them uh, to condemn Christ. She goes on, by the law of God, he was disqualified from the, for the, from the priesthood. Uh, he had pronounced upon himself the what? Death sentence. You see, uh, in the Old Testament, the high priests were never to rip their robe because their robes were perfect. They were a symbol of the character of Christ. And char- the character of Christ was, with, was without flaw. But in the Jewish system, we know that there are many man-made traditions that they, that, they, that they put on top of God's laws that were not from God. And one of those Jewish traditions was if the high priest was in the presence of a blasphemer, he could choose, if he so desired, to rent his robes because he was before blasphemy. And so as the priest ripped his royal robes, he made void the law of God through the traditions of Men trying to sway the minds of these people who are looking at Jesus and saying, is this the Son of God? So in answer to Caiaphas' question, what think ye? The judges are convinced by Caiaphas' foolishness. The answer in verse 66, he is guilty of death. Sad words, aren't they? For he was not guilty of death. He was worthy of life. I am worthy of death. But I'm so thankful that he took upon him what I deserve so that I could have what he deserves. He is guilty of death, and pandemonium breaks out. Remember, the Spirit of God was in the palace of Caiaphas. He was working on the heart of Caiaphas. He was working on the heart of the judges. He was working on the hearts of the people. And as they looked into the face of Jesus, they were convinced that there was something God-like here. And at this, at this pronouncement of his being worthy of death... Demon-possessed people began to be enraged with the Son of God, and they begin to mistreat him. Listen to what Ellen White says. She describes this here in, in page 710 of Desire of Ages. She says, The ignorant rabble had seen the cruelty with which he was treated before the council, and from this they took license to manifest all, sat- all the satanic elements of their nature. 
If they had satanic elements in their nature, what does that mean? They were possessed. They were possessed by the devil at this time. She goes on, she says, Christ's very nobility and godlike bearing goaded them to madness. As they looked at him and they saw, yes, there is divinity in here. There is the Son of God. This is God. This is a, a man, and, and a God-like man. They were moved by that at first. But the very thing that moved them in conviction at the beginning now spurred on their hatred for him and goaded them, she says, to madness. His meekness, his innocence, his majestic patience filled them with hatred born of Satan. Mercy and justice were trampled upon. Never was a criminal treated in so inhumane a manner as was the Son of God. And Peter tells us, he sinned not, even though he was treated like an animal. It's not human, friends. It's just not human to act the way Jesus did. It's divine. And we can have that experience. For all things are possible through Christ, which strengtheneth us. Four things we learn from the court of Caiaphas. Four examples that Jesus gives to us in the court of Caiaphas. Number one, Jesus never spoke a word in his own self-defense. Jesus spoke no words in self-defense. Number two, he confessed his father before men, even though that would seal his fate. He knew that by saying he was the son of God... That was going to be it. That was going to be the kingpin that everything was going to hinge upon that would ultimately cause him to be killed. But he was willing to do it because his father's reputation was at stake. So he confessed his father before men, even though it would seal his fate. Number three, while being yelled at and mistreated by religious authorities, he maintained his hold and his connection with God. You know, some of us think it's a license for us to give up on God if we're mistreated by somebody who's in the religious, who's a clergy. We have some chip on our shoulder that if a clergy member or a, uh, or, or, or a high official in the, in the church mistreats us, we feel like it, we have some sort of duty to respond in a negative way for some reason. They mistreated us. So I'm going this way. And so you talk to them about where they're going at and their religious experience. And oftentimes they will point back and say, so-and-so did this to me. So-and-so said that to me. When you follow up on inactive members who have not been attending church for a while and you ask them, why aren't you coming? It's because so-and-so did this. It's because such-and-such said that. It's because this happened. It's because that happened. I didn't get reelected into office. Or I was told that I wasn't supposed to gamble. Or I'm not supposed to smoke. Or I'm not supposed to wear jewelry. Or whatever it may be. That's why I have left the church. But you know what? Jesus did not use that as a license to give up his hold on God. And brothers and sisters, we're going, to be, we're going to be tested with the very same thing in the end of verse history. There will be religious people who will stand up before us and give us to the dogs. But may we maintain and hold a hold on our integrity and maintain our hold upon God. That even though those men may revile us and mistreat us, that it's not going to affect my relationship with the Father.
because they are sinful human beings just like I'm a sinful human being. And they hurt people just like I hurt people. And may God help us all to make right those wrongs that we have done in our lives. Number three. While being yelled at and mistreated by religious authorities, Jesus maintained his hold upon God. Number four. Jesus had complete confidence that his father was ultimately in control. Jesus had complete confidence that his father was ultimately in control. And this leads us to our second tool. The first tool is that Jesus prayed while others what? Slept. The second tool is that Jesus knew his what? He knew his father. These seem to be so elementary that sometimes we're tempted to nod off when when we start talking about knowing the father. But Jesus knew his father so intimately that as this demonstration was playing out, he never questioned his hold and his integrity to his father. He never questioned it. Because he knew his father. And you know this word know, oftentimes in the Bible, is used to describe a very intimate relationship between a man and a woman. A very close relationship between the two. And here we find that Jesus knew his father. It was an intimate thing. It wasn't just an intellectual thing like, oh yeah, I know there's a God in heaven. Oh yeah, there's a God that created all things. Oh yeah, there's a God who inspired the writings of scripture. But it's an intimate knowing of the father that helped Jesus as he stood in the court of Caiaphas and all the other judgments that he went through that helped him to maintain his hold upon the father. I close with this passage here in Daniel and I just, I saved the best for the last. So listen to this. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 32 It says this, the people that do know their God will be, was Jesus strong? Why? Because he knew his father intimately, not just intellectually, but intimately. He had experienced the father in the garden. He had experienced his father. He had heard the voice of his father speaking to him through the scriptures and through impressions that were laid upon his heart. He knew his father in an intimate way. And because he knew his father, he knew his God, he was strengthened when the hour of crisis came. And brothers and sisters, if we don't know our father, we will crumble like a house of cards. If it's just a theoretical knowledge right here inside of your head, forget it. It's not going to hold. I'm going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm just going to follow Peter and the rest of the disciples like sheep without a shepherd. But if we know our God as Jesus knew his Father, we will be strong and do what the Bible calls exploits. The word exploits is defined as the acts or an act or deed, especially a brilliant or heroic act or deed. Did Jesus do a brilliant or heroic act or deed in the last 48 hours of his life? Yes, 
He left us a beautiful example that we could follow. And by us knowing our God and being strong, we will do brilliant acts or deeds that will demonstrate to other people that will help them know their God in a more intimate way and be strengthened and encouraged to meet the crisis that's just before. So I ask you a simple question tonight. How well do you know the Father? You know, when I look at Jesus, I think to myself, boy, I got a long ways to go. Is there anybody else here that feels like that? (laughs) When I look at Jesus and how deep he was with the Father, I think, I have no conception of what it means to know the Father. May God help me to know him. Not know him, but know him in my heart. I trust that all of you here this evening want to know the Father. Amen? Amen. You want to know him intimately. We all have good intentions We all have good desires in our hearts. As Seventh-day Adventists, we have good intentions that we want to be ready when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. There's nothing that thrills our soul more than the patriotic hymns that we sing about the second advent of Christ. There's nothing more that stirs our soul than a good message on Daniel chapter 2 and the signs of Christ's second coming. There's nothing that fills us with more excitement than the thought of this world being destroyed and recreated and given to to us as an inheritance, but do you know the Father? Do you know the Father? Have you entered into that closet? Have you spent that time with him? Have you played with him and yearned with him? Have you tarried in that prayer time, in that silence, when you feel like God is not speaking to you? Have you lingered a little bit longer and said, Father, I will not let you go until you bless me this morning? even if it means I'm late to that appointment because you are more important than anything else in my life and I'm going to lay hold upon you and not let you go until you bless me. You know, oftentimes, friends, we hurry off from our prayer time just at the moment that heaven is about to kiss earth and talk to you and we miss out on that beautiful experience because we didn't linger and wait for the Father to reveal himself to us. How many of you this evening want to say, Father, I want to know you more. I don't know you the way I should. I'm thankful for what I do know. But I want to know you as Jesus knew you. How many of you want to say that tonight? Father in heaven, you see our hands raised. You know our hearts. We feel so weak. As the psalmist says, that you know our frame, and that you remember that we are dust. You look at us so weak, but Lord, you're looking at our hearts. And Father, you've seen the hands that were raised. We don't know you as we ought because we don't spend time with you the way we should. Father, I pray that you would change the course of our life in a radical way. If it means trials, bring it on. If it means persecution, bring it on. If it means some calamity in our life, bring it on, Lord. We want to be saved. 
If it means having something like that happen so that we can know you more, Father, we're willing. Just let it happen. But, Father, if it can happen in the stillness of our closets in the morning with you, praise God. Lord, may we go home tonight. Set our alarm clocks to wake up a little earlier. Instead of having those frivolous conversations online or watching those foolish programs on television, we'll go to bed a little bit earlier at night. So we don't have the excuse that we're not getting enough rest to spend time with you. Father, push away these human-made excuses that we've bought into. And may our hearts be laid open, bare before you who we really are. May we feel our brokenness and our nakedness before you. And may we feel our complete and utter dependence upon you in this time of earth's history. Father, help us to not be foolish in our own understanding, but to be wise in your word. Thank you for this great example that you've given to us in your son. Oh, Father, bless us, I pray. And may we know you more, I ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.